Hello, and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hey, Jason. How's, how's it going? It's going good. We got a bit of a heat wave here in California. Uh, I don't have air conditioning because when this building was made, it was not quite as hot every summer. It's the story they tell me, at least. I I would assume that's true, having grown up around here. Um, I did not have air conditioning, and there are only a few days where I remember being uncomfortable. And my house definitely is newer and has air conditioning, and I'm I am grateful for it. Although I try to limit its use. Sure. So, uh, Todd, what are we what are we talking about today? So we're going to talk about uh, cognitive training and mental fatigue a little bit, and so how that applies to our performance and things we might do to mitigate our mental fatigue as we're riding and enhance our performance. So I actually got here to sort of a, a roundabout way. Um, as, as PTs often do, uh, we share research papers with colleagues and um, have a friend of mine who actually works as a PT for an NBA team. And so we got, we got to talking one evening and he sent me some interesting articles that I hadn't seen looking at ACL rehab and so anterior cruciate ligament, um, you know, commonly torn in, you know, the major field sports or your football, soccer, uh, you know, you, you don't see it in say baseball as much, but certainly, uh, basketball is fairly common injury as well. And it's so, associated with side to side movement. Is that correct? The injury? Uh, yeah, it's the, you know, usually a pivoting or twisting sort of a, a motion on a planted foot or, you know, c- coming down from a landing in a, like in an awkward position at the knee then you know, leads to an overload at that particular ligament and then it ruptures and surgery. And then often, you know, athletes are out for, you know, nine months to a year uh, is a fairly common time frame for ultimate recovery. And the, the thing that, you know, we brought this up is that actually the re-injury rate for these um, ACL here is quite high, uh, anywhere on the order of, you know, 30, 35% uh, over time, either for the, the initial side that was injured or to actually go return to sport and at some point in the future, re-tear the other or tear the other side. So, you know, what this paper was talking about, I was trying to look at what's, you know, what's different between those who have had the injury and surgery and those who, you know, matching um, for similar individuals, like their age, size, their sporting history, who have not had the injury. And this particular study, they were using fMRI, uh, so functional MRI, to assess activity of the brain area. I'm not going to go too far uh, more down the rabbit hole here other than say like they did a very simple movement, which we do in cycling, which is knee flexion and extension. Uh, and you can't do a lot when you're in an fMRI machine because you have to stay still. So you can't like do a big um, complex movement like say a squat or a lunge. It just doesn't work right now in fMRI. So you have to do a very basic movement. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that different areas of the brain are active between the individuals who were um, recovering from the ACL injury and those who had never had one. And the conclusion was that those who are, you know, post-operative and rehabbing, um, they tend to have a shift to what they call a visual motor strategy for movement, uh, which in layman's terms is to say like they use their, their vision to cue the movement. So like, just think about it this way. They, they would look down at their knee to confirm that their knee was doing what they were asking their knee to do. So bending, straightening, you know, quadriceps muscle was contracting, what have you. And, you know, this is fairly common in rehab. We very early on often have people focus and ask them like, hey, look at your leg. I want you to see that your quadriceps muscle is contracting. 
I want to see that you're bending your knee and keep, you know, look, you know, you focus on it and you're trying to bend it. And so it's very focused on the knee. There's a lot of visual feedback that happens there. And their hypothesis there is that one, you have a lot of, um, you have change or neuroplasticity in the brain. So the brain actually changes a bit in response to this very heavy visual cueing and you uh, adopt a new strategy. In addition, um, they were saying that in, in a sporting environment, you can't do that, right? You can't look down at your knee to see that it's bending and straightening the way you expect when you're running and cutting on a field. You have to you know, look at the other players on the field, look at the ball. You have to do some motor planning to figure out what the right strategy is, what the right next move is. And because of the changes in the brain and how they were more visual oriented, they were hypothesizing that that may be a factor in why the re-injury rate is so high and mm -hmm. then proposing uh, that we sort of adapt our rehab protocols to shift away and actually you know, obscure the vision and um, you know give folks other tasks so they're not focused just on what their knee is doing but they're focused on other things um, so like if you're tossing them ball and playing catch or juggling or I mean I think you know we've talked about um, you know, Schurter, if you look at his videos of what he does when he's trained, they're very complex movements, like he's juggling, standing on a, a balance board, yeah. it's like to distract him from the task of, so it's very, it's much more complex than just balancing. And so similar, similar idea. So anyhow, that's sort of how I got here. And I, I started thinking to myself, well, you know, what about cycling? Like, and I, I kind of asked myself this question, like, how does this apply to cycling? Does it apply to our performance? And I actually was thinking about it because of, you know, I think, all of the indoor training and the, like smart trainer stuff that a lot of folks have been doing right now. And the question I actually asked myself when I started down this path was, you know, so is 300 watts or 200 watts or whatever wattage you want to name it um, in a race harder than it is on your trainer, right? Because your trainer is fixed. You could just totally focus on the number and hammer out the number, whereas a race is dynamic. You know, if nothing else, your bike is not strapped to a trainer and, and stationary. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I started down this path. It was like, is this, is this harder somehow on us in a race than it is in training? And if the answer to that question is yes, then how do we make our training more like our racing in terms of the demand? Hmm. So I, my initial reaction to this is for me, absolutely racing is so much harder than training because I believe this this mental load is really high. And um, for me, I, I'm really a tactical rider. I'm not that strong, especially compared to the people I'm racing against. So I have to make sure that I have the right tactics to try and get the advantage so that I can. And so I notice, and my coach uh, has repeatedly kind of slapped the ruler at me about, I slink to the back of the field in criteriums because um, it's too mentally fatiguing to try and hold your position at the front, especially when I'm trying to think about tactics or think about the dynamic of the race. And so to just, you know, use your brain to say, okay, who's up the road? You know, should I attack now? Uh, should I wait? Like making decisions about what to do next in a race and then also not crashing into people, you know, staying in the top 10 riders, whatever other demands you have, very mentally fatiguing. So uh, I absolutely agree that there is a difference. I don't have any studies to show this, but anecdotally, um, I'm interested in seeing if, if this could be made easier. So I'm, I'm so glad you asked, because I 
found lots of studies to at least um, get at this idea and try to you know, suss this out a little bit. And I think one of the things we mentioned on a prior episode uh, when we were just talking about this, I was gonna, I'm gonna plant this seed right now, which is the brain really likes glucose. And it turns out that so do your legs when you're around threshold and are working really hard in a race. So just, just keep that in mind as we go through um, some of these things, right? Because we know our glucose supply is limited and we can only replenish so much when we're racing and training hard. Okay. All right, so we'll start here. This is a 2016 study and we'll include this in the show notes. Um, and it's Martin et al. And you know they, they just start off like top line in their, their abstract is the brain has an important role in regulating endurance performance. It's like, okay, good. Uh, we're, we're on board, this, this, start, this starts to work. And they did a, they did a very interesting thing. Um, so first off, they found 11 pros and nine recreational cyclists to test, which is great. And they did uh, two conditions for each group. Their, their cycling test uh, was a 20 minute time trial. Okay. Okay. And their control condition was a 10 minute easy mental task. Um, you know, so, okay. So just very simple. And then their um, experimental condition was a 30 minute Stroop task. Are you familiar with the, the Stroop test? No. Okay. So this is, there are plenty of apps out here that will give you, give you the Stroop test and it's, it's kind of obnoxious. I can't even imagine doing it for 30 minutes. So it shows you a word and the word is a color like the word blue. But the word blue is presented to you in text that is, say, red. Okay, so it's incongruent. Okay. And your task is to respond with the color of the text. Not what it says, but the color that it's in. Okay. This is surprisingly hard because you want to read the word and answer that but you actually have to like suppress that urge and reason about what color am I seeing and then answer it. So they, you're just sitting at a computer and, um, you know, responding with the color of the text, you, you know, it, say it's, it's the word blue and it's in red and you have to type in red. Uh, it's usually like a click, right? Like multiple okay. choice, click, you know, click blue, click red. And so it's supposed to be fast, right? It's supposed to check your reaction time and, that's that's one of the dimensions okay. that you get graded on typically is um, so you get speed and accuracy, right? Well, to do this for 30 minutes would be brutal. I can't even imagine. Like I've I've played with it a little bit, and I, I like I'll go. So here's you know here's your insight into how I'm thinking about this. I'll do it standing on a balance board and do the street task for like a minute, and that that's enough for me. I can't even imagine doing mm-hmm. it for 30 minutes. But down, just, you know, look in the app store for your phone and download the Stroop task and just, just try it. It's, yeah, it's surprisingly hard. Like you get a hang of it, you get used to it, but it does require some concentration. You can imagine after 30 minutes that you'd start to get fatigued, slow down, make mistakes. Sure. And so what did they find about, uh, so was this comparing the differences between professional and amateur athletes or what were some of the conclusions? Right. So this is, they were looking at, you know, do professionals or amateurs perform differently under conditions of mental fatigue? So you, you were primed with this Stroop test for 30 minutes and then you had to do your 20 minute TT. 
and they did a crossover design. So not, you know, some people had did the Stroop test in their TT first, and then some people did the um, the 10 minute task in the TT and, you know, they, they randomized that. So sure. first thing they found is that the pros were way better at the Stroop test. Like they were, they were able to complete more um, correct responses in the 30 minutes than the amateurs were. So you heard it here first, being good at the Stroop test will make you a better cyclist. Sure. Um, <laughs> not, not quite their conclusion, but, um, and then they, you know, they looked at the, the power results, which is probably what we're, in, we're interested in. And it turned out that for the pros, there was no change. Like the mental task didn't change their ability to put out power on the bike for their 20 minute time trial. Mm-hmm. However, um, there was a significant difference for the recreational cyclists and it was lower for the recreational cyclists. So compared to themselves, right? Uh, yes, of course, the pros had more power than the recreational cyclists. That I think was a given. But you know, against themselves, the recreational cyclists fared worse. Um, it was like I want to say it was a 0.01 p value. So yes, very good. Very, you know, pretty strong evidence that they were actually worse with that. And so this is one of these. Um, correlation, not causation sort of things, right? So the conclusion was, yes, the brain plays a role in, you know, endurance performance. We, we knew that confirmed. There's this ability, this inhibitory ability and suppression, they hypothesized, you know, maybe an important factor. And what they couldn't, you know, tease out from this study was, is that a part of being a pro? Like you have this, you know, great ability to do a stoop test and that's you know in part what enables you to be a pro or was it that in becoming a pro you develop this ability right and you, we can't necessarily know that unless we tested you know athletes over time and see you know see who performs well and not and see if that there's some correlation there and then i think also something that you can't conclude that we would want to know is if your if your ability to handle these tests improves does that make you a better cyclist? Correct. And so we have to, you know, have to infer that may, maybe there's something to be said there, right? But we're not certain that that's going to make you a better cyclist. Sure. And I think this is interesting because um, I was told one time that we sort of have 10 units of concentration. And um, so this is kind of one reason why I might go to the back of the field to think about the race tactic is, is because... I only have 10 units and eight of them I have to think about race tactics and the other two I'm staying upright on the bike. So if, if I had to stay at the front, I would be using more than 10 and it would be really difficult. And I think that that's interesting if we kind of dig into this idea that we have a finite amount of capacity for attention or capacity for use within our body. It seems like maybe the pros are better at handling that or maybe they have more than 10 units like a pro would have 12 and the rest of us have 10 or um, perhaps they the act of riding their bike is fewer units um, if if this analogy works and um, it's interesting and I guess uh, I'd want to learn more and I I want to do more tests to see uh, you know how, how do I you know how do I become one of the pros or you know how do I uh, show similar quantities or qualities to them how do you how do you adapt those traits and yeah, I mean, I think some of it, well, we're going to go into hypothesis land for a minute, is pros are really good at riding their bikes. And, I, you know, yes, I know that's it's a pretty obvious statement, but it, I mean that in more than just the obvious way. Like, 
pros are really good bike handlers, right? Mm-hmm. Like many of them. And that doesn't come from just messing around. I mean, you, yeah, you learn it. It's acquired. It's an acquired skill, but I think doing the things that we take as, you know, you know, maybe challenging for us are probably basic to them. And so it's like, I think to your point, maybe the riding the bike requires fewer attentional units for them um, is, is one piece of this puzzle. Right. And it's something they teach coaches a lot is, uh, for example, like Larry Nolan is um, really into this concept. And I think, I think it's more of a psychological, a generic psychological concept, but it's this um, unconscious uh, capacity to do things. And there, mm-hmm. there's a four step pathway of um, you don't really know what to do and you know, you don't know what to do. Um, and then the next step is, you know what to do, but you can't do it. And the next step is you know what to do and you can do it kind of, you know, you have to think about it. And then the last mm-hmm. step is you just do the right thing and it, and it just comes yep. naturally. It's auto- Yeah. It's automatic. And, um, you know, I would say there are definitely some things that I do racing that it's like, oh, well, of course that's what you do. You know, you always drop in right behind the, the other rider. Or, um, you know, some of these things that you see a cat for and, and it doesn't come intuitively to them. And so it is important to remember that you have to tell people and they have to learn these things over time. But uh, when you get to a certain point, it's just it's just already done. You're not saying, oh, I have to do this. You're just already behind the rider. Or you're already, you know, attacking right at the right moment or what, whatever the area is. And I wonder if they're able to show that you use less brain capacity or less, you know, whatever the quantity is within your brain for people who have high competency in a certain area. If, you know, if their brain is actually working less for the same activity. Well, that's another another fMRI study that they probably can't do for a while until the units are mobile mm-hmm. or EEG or something. But yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's certainly something to that and that idea of, you know, you just get really good at it. And I, you know, I think there's this other idea of like, if you're really good at a skill and somebody asks you, so how do you do that? Sometimes it's hard for you to explain it to them. Mm-hmm. You just, it just is right. Like I, well, yeah, I just do that thing because of course you do it, right? Like that's just comes natural. Um, but then, it, but as to the beginner, you know, probably wasn't always that way for you. And to the beginner, it's like, so that's, well, that's really crazy. What do you, like, why did you do that thing? And you sometimes have to break it down even for yourself to explain it back to so like, why, why did I do that? Oh, well, because this is, you know, this is why and you have to break it down, but it was to you automatic and required no explanation. Yeah, and I think um, one thing that I would say on this, and if if you're looking to be able to do more cycling at the subconscious level or unconsciously, I think the biggest thing that you can do is just ride your bike more and and tax your mind and your body in kind of new ways. Like if you do the same route every day, you don't push yourself on the downhills, you don't um, you know hit hit a couple corners hard or you know, whatever, you're, you're not starting to build that pathway within your brain to make it more subconscious or unconscious. So um, initially, like the initial suggestion would be try and maximize. And this is what this was Eddie Merckx's thing, right? Go ride your bike. Um, it's sort of, they're like, how do you get so good? He's like, well, how many hours have you spent on the bike? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, step number one, go ride your bike and also challenge yourself on the bike to, you know, make those efforts more subconscious. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to throw out a couple more data points here for okay. us just to, to mull over and then hopefully arrive at some more, um, some more conclusions and some more, um, some more ideas on how to execute this. So, um, there's another study, this again, recreational cyclists, uh, this test in particular was a 20 kilometer TT. Uh, they did a, you know, a fatigue test. So a, a similar mental task beforehand. And this one, they noticed a 3% decrease in performance. Okay. So it's notable, um, you know, especially, you know, a couple percentage points matter depending, you know, depending on what distance you're riding. Um, this one I found actually super interesting and like crazy brutal, like the poor people who signed up for this study. <laughs> um, so, so they did this in heat. This is like, yeah, was like one day it's, you know, said, okay, yep. We, when we fatigue people, we definitely see a decrease in performance. So then they decided that they were going to do it in hot conditions. Why they needed to do that. I don't know, but that's what they decided. So by, well, by I, all means, I will just got, say quickly that, uh, you know, one thing that a lot of white papers do is they sort of take it to the extreme. And that's because there is this certain demand on them to show a statistically significant difference. Sure. And that's why a lot of papers on, for example, supplements, they take like a massive dose of the supplement. And it's because we need to really show that there's a difference. And so I assume these researchers were, well, if they get tired from regular work, imagine if we uh, heated them up too. And, you know, that would really show a big difference. So here's, here's what they did this at this study. So, you know, the one study I was talking about earlier with the pros and amateurs, they did a 30 minute stoop task. This one, they made them do a 45 minute stoop task. So yeah, 50% more just to sure. make sure they were really mentally fatigued. And, um, I, I like how they set up the, you know, endurance part of the study and the performance part. So, is it, I mean, it's not a perfect replication of a race, but it, it, it feels more like a racing situation where they did uh, 45 minutes. They were to ride at 60% of their VO2 max. And then they did um, a TT, which was a, a fixed workload, which was equivalent to, I believe, 80% of their VO2 max for 20 minutes but they were supposed to ride that as fast as possible. And the average time was about 15 minutes for this TT section. So, you know, about an hour of riding in the heat, um, 30 degrees Celsius. So you know, it's, it's warm, not hot, right? So body yeah. temperature in Celsius is 37, 38. So, you know, that's whatever, 80s roughly. Yeah, I wanna say like 87 or something. Yeah, it's I think mid, mid to high 80s roughly. So, you know, again, like, it's, you know, if you're riding for an hour and that's pretty hot, especially if you're in a lab. Um, so here's the interesting thing. No decrease in performance in the fatigue, mentally fatigued condition versus the control condition. Hmm. And, and, you know, this is sort of counter to our, our hypothesis about, you know, units. What they proposed was that the hot environment was really the biggest strain, not the mental fatigue. Right. So like that, that overwhelmed the mental fatigue. So like mental fatigue was trivial compared to the heat more or less. And that was enough strain right there to slow them. You know, so you didn't, there's already, they, now they didn't test a regular temperature condition. 
Um, yeah. So they can't, you know, they can't really compare that, but their hypothesis, well, you know, the heat overwhelmed the mental fatigue aspect of it. And that's why we didn't see a change. Yeah, it so, is interesting. There, There is some confounding variables in there uh, between so, the heat and the the mental fatigue. So, you know, because because one study never answers, you know, all the questions for you, you try to find a systematic review, um, you know, or a meta-analysis to look at many studies, right, and pull those results and try to say, well, what have multiple studies said in this area? And I was able to find one. Uh, it had 11 different studies that were compiled in it. And, I, you know, I think this is super unique in all the research I've done. Um, I can't say, you know, and like all the PT research I've looked at and believe me, that's a lot, uh, that they, you know, when they go through and they rate the studies that they are reviewing to say that, um, all their studies were moderate or strong evidence, like, hmm. and, you know, so like, that's good. Like, so that, you know, cause sometimes it's like, oh, well we did, you know, we had 20 studies and eight were low quality and you know, seven were moderate quality and five were strong okay well you know that's that's tough if half of them were low quality what do we what do we make of that so to actually say these were all moderate to strong i think is you know that's that says something that it gives me confidence that when you look at these results that you're going to see something consistent you're going to see a trend that you can sort of um, you know hang your hat on and the results here just generalized were when you have somebody do an endurance task after they've been mentally fatigued, you see decreases in endurance, decreases in power output, decrease in time to exhaustion. And the flip side of these things or the result of these things is a increased completion time for a, you know, a fixed length task. Right? You're going, you're going slower is the, right, the outcome of this. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing, and this is going to go back to like the mental aspect of it, is there was no significant difference observed in physiologic parameters. So I'm talking about heart rate, lactate accumulation, cardiac output, aerobic capacity. There was nothing, no, no changes there, right? So if your performance is worse, but your physiologic parameters were equivalent. Hmm. And so from all these data points and those results and those studies, their conclusion was that the negative impact of mental fatigue is due to the change in the perceived exertion for the task. Okay. Right. So you are mentally fatigued and your perception of that same task is that it is harder and that leads to the negative result. So from that, I take, this is, you know, this is probably going to shock you. I'm going to say this, this is evidence to support the central governor being, you know, in force there, right? Yeah, you, absolutely. You were mentally fatigued. You perform, you, you perceive the effort to be harder, even though your physiologic parameters did not change. Um, I also took this to, t- to mean that, you know, Hey, if you have a bad training day after like a, a long day at work, a tough day at work, maybe you're a student and you were doing your finals or you were studying a lot uh, for midterm or something like that, that's probably to be expected. Like, you don't don't throw your training program out. That's actually probably quite a reasonable um, 
conclusion that that was a, a hard workout because you felt like it was a hard workout. And you, even if you went back and looked at your data and said, but my heart rate was, you know, the same, what, why did I feel so bad? Because you were mentally fatigued. That's totally reasonable. Yeah, I guess my, uh, my response here is one, yes, please go listen to the central governor episode. Uh, and I, I absolutely think that this connects into that same area as well. And I mean, we have to show that there's evidence that you perform worse when you, uh, you know, have mental fatigue, which the meta-analysis uh, claims is true. But I, I think this absolutely fits into exactly what we were talking about in that episode. And sort of we have this thing in our brain that says you're allowed to go this hard because we're worried about, you know, your ability to go harder or, um, you know, some sort of complex uh, pattern that says, you know, it's okay to go harder. It's not okay to go harder. And I think one thing that's also interesting is, actually, I guess I have two things here. Um, one is the balance, something that maybe deserves an episode of its own is the balance of do I work out in the morning or do I work out after work or after class? And there's a balance. We know that hormonal levels are better in the afternoon. Uh, we know general um like activity, like you're more active, your muscles perform better in the afternoon. Uh, but, you know, if you spent all day doing quantum physics or, you know, it doesn't even have to be that mentally fatiguing. Um, it, you could see a decrement in your performance based on fatigue from another source, not necessarily an active source. So finding the right balance for your own lifestyle, keeping in mind that, you know, there is one unit of fatigue. And that doesn't have to be physical fatigue. It doesn't have to be mental fatigue. Just fatigue in general will affect your ability to ride your bike. So this this is where I want to bring back up the glucose point, um, which is, right, I said earlier, brain loves glucose. And so if I did this mentally fatiguing task, presumably I just burned a bunch of glucose. And then mm -hmm. I hopped on my bike and I was asked to pedal really hard where I also want to burn a whole bunch of glucose. It seems to me, and again, going to hypothesis land, that one of the the checks for the central governor is how much glucose is available. And yep. if that's a little bit low and, you know, either because you're starved, right, or in a fasted state, or you just, you know, burnt a bunch of mental energy and you're mentally fatigued, that the central governor, you know, runs a check and says, well, glucose is low and therefore your perception of the effort becomes harder. And I think... This also dovetails nicely with some of the research that shows you can get a, a performance improvement with just a mouth rinse of a carbohydrate um, solution. Yeah. So, which would say that's, you know, the it's suggesting that glucose is coming, right? Mm -hmm. So, the, well, to summarize that paper, um, you riders feel refreshed or they have an increase in power if they just swish Gatorade in their mouth and then spit it out. Um, and, and the idea is that our brain is cued by the flavor and the taste of the sugar rather than the actual ingestion of it. Um, and, right. and so it, it's, um, it, that also leads to the central governor, uh, theory saying that it gives you permission to then go harder. I think, uh, on this topic, specifically the study about the pros versus the amateurs that we talked about earlier in the episode, I think it's interesting that, you know, we know that pros have more fat metabolism than amateurs. And I think another thing that might be true, and this is, there's, I do not have evidence for this, other than um, I think that pros 
have their brain gives them permission to continue to go hard even with lower glucose levels. I would be willing to believe that that's true. I think I could get behind that hypothesis, sure. So because every day they train, they deplete their glucose, they continue to go hard, their brain says it's okay for us to continue to go all out or maintain threshold even though you know our glucose is waning or has waned from the mental exercise. And that, that's what allowed them to maintain their power. Another idea could be that the pros had higher glycogen stores in the first place because they're professional cyclists. They know how to fuel properly for their events versus the amateurs may have leaned on a less carbohydrate heavy diet. And if you go back to the episode on you should eat more carbs, uh, you know that I believe that most people don't eat enough carbs to support their workouts and Maybe this is another piece in the puzzle of make sure you have all the sugar you need for your tasks. Yeah, I know that's, that's totally fair. Um, I guess this, this leads me back to answering my, my question, right. That I posed, and I think that you already answered or you concur with me now that, you know, your race watts are probably harder than your training watts for, for the reason, if nothing else, the mental strain that's involved um, in a racing situation compared to a training environment. Sure. And I think it's interesting because although you're probably using more glucose, more glycogen to do the race efforts, at the same time, it's uh, it's amazing how much more energy you have or you feel you have during a race. Uh, it, it is a lot easier to turn off the central governor or at least push it aside a bit more than usual in a race in this sort of your it's almost like your brain knows how important this is. It's willing to take more risks with its safety in order to allow you to go harder. At least that's my experience. So it's it's an interesting balance of this is harder, but we're going to let you push the limits a little bit more as well. Sure. And I think that's where motivation comes in too, right? Is one of these factors that we have to take into account. Right? It's how, how motivated am I during this race, right? How amped up am I for this? And like you said, how important is this for me to push me that just that much harder? Yeah. And so we know there is this tuning factor on the central governor where you can and have the motivation push it a little bit further. So, all right, what about what about solutions? What might we be able to do uh, in terms of addressing maybe the limitations of mental fatigue? And can we can we train ourselves up or maybe leverage this a little bit? And so, I have some suggestions. Um, so, one is caffeine, uh, my my favorite ergogenic aid. And there's actually this there's a study that shows that. Consumption of caffeine um, reduces or eliminates the decline that is caused by these mental fatigue tasks on your endurance performance. Uh, but it's interesting is it doesn't, they looked at brain activity right, using EEG and the brain activity didn't change, right? So you still showed the same like mentally fatigued brain pattern, but your endurance performance was improved um, mm. relative. It was, that was mitigated. So that was kind of interesting. It's like, well, the brain didn't change, but the caffeine did something that made your, you know, that leveled your performance. So, okay, this is where these uh, caffeinated energy gels or sports drinks or something might help you out uh, during your your events or during your training even. All right, like, like we were just saying, train after your workday. Maybe it's a you know, caffeinated gel or a coffee before, you know, before your um, your training session strategically to make, have some caffeine on board and um, mitigate the effects of maybe the mental fatigue from the workday or, or school. Mm. Yeah, caffeine's interesting. I would 
agree, you have to be careful uh, not to take caffeine too be- uh, too close to your bedtime. Um, but it is interesting that we see some benefits of caffeine, even though we don't really know why. Uh, we we know it helps with endurance performance, but you know some of the physiological parameters don't change. And well, you go faster, so let's not mess with it. Let's just all you know have caffeine before our race. And then the, the other things, um, there's something that's called a, a dual task paradigm, which is the idea of you're being asked to do two things at once, shocking, um, to put you know more strain on the brain. So this could be something like I mentioned earlier, like balancing and juggling or like walking and talking could fit into that or, you know, cycling and doing mental math, for example. So there, there was a study that I've, I've heard referenced many times I, I haven't found and my understanding is that it was British military, perhaps British special forces. And basically what they did is they looked at this concept of mental fatigue and what they had their uh, soldiers do was do aerobic exercise, like a treadmill, I believe. And then they were, if I remember correctly, given um, like challenging mental math to do, right? And so they had like constantly work out these math problems while they were on the treadmill. And what they saw and again, my understanding is like this one was like classified. So nobody actually knows what the answer is, but it's been suggested by people who know that there was a dramatic increase in performance by those who did the you know, math plus exercise compared to mm-hmm. those who just did exercise. Um, suggesting again, you know, central governor theories in play, but putting, you know, if you train with that additional mental strain that actually you get um, an improvement in your ability to push harder. So again, I was like, that's like consistent with everything we've been saying. It's kind of consistent with what uh, some of this research is saying. And so, um, I've, so I've seen sort of two approaches to this. One, um, there's individuals that have like this setup of like basically do mental fatigue and then go do your workout is one approach to it. I'm, I'm proposing more in line with what the you know, initial ACL rehab research said is like, no, let's challenge you while you're doing your task. And in my mind, this is like, why not? If you're going to be on a trainer doing a fixed wattage, let's just make you do some Stroop tasks while you're doing it. Um, set up that iPad or whatever you have and download a Stroop app and do do that while you're training. And I've been I've been mean to do this. I think I'm probably going to start start doing this in a couple of weeks here. Just got to figure out the right electronics setup so I don't sweat too much and, you know, ruin expensive electronics yeah i uh, I feel like the zwift um the zwift platform not the the actual riding platform but they have a way for you to hold your laptop or hold your ipad or something could be uh, a good design to get it close to you yeah so i think that you know that idea and get that going and i'm not saying you're doing vo2 max intervals uh I'm, i'm thinking more like tempo maybe threshold sweet spot sort of thing uh but with the the mental focus component of it just to see see what happens i, I think mm-hmm. it'll be a fun fun little experiment so maybe what i'll do is i'll i'll set myself up some experimental conditions and i can uh, report back some some findings um it, it's on some future episode yeah and i guess on this topic i remember in college i yeah i was doing a lot of base miles and i said hey wouldn't it be great to uh, maintain, you know, in high school, I took Spanish. Wouldn't it be great to maintain my my Spanish by listening to Spanish podcasts or Spanish, you know, learn Spanish podcasts? And 
I remember the mental fatigue of trying to draw out the correct words, you know, out of your brain or out of your vocabulary bank was just, you know, I think I got halfway through a ride and I was like, okay, I can't do this. This is too much. Um, but I wonder if something like that would similarly tax the, the brain in the same way. Like if you had uh, some audio while you're doing a climb, you know, this doesn't have to be restricted to the trainer. Say you're doing a climb and you have in your ears, you know, what is 237 plus 846? And you have to, uh, you know, connect the dots you know, yourself and you have 30 seconds to answer or something while you're doing the climb, if that would, you know, s stimulate the same adaptations. Yeah. I mean, I think I would imagine so, right. Cause you're, you're being forced to concentrate on something. Um, I guess I like the idea of the like smart trainer cause I can, I can tell it how many Watts I want to go at and mm. I don't have to think it. Right. Cause like there is some, while you're on the climb, like you do have to regulate a little bit. Whereas like, I can set this to say, hold 300 watts and I can just do that and then um, do the mental task. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm defeating the purpose by doing that too, right? Maybe it's the actual, the attention of staying on the bike at X watts and doing the mental math that's actually going to get the benefit instead of the, you know, don't worry about the watch, just pedal and then do this mental task. Yeah, so it is. I guess there's a couple of variations to this uh, this approach. And then the other idea I had was, what if you're doing something like um, training where you're trying to focus on the quality of your pedal stroke while doing something mentally fatiguing? If that could help ingrain the quality of your pedal stroke because you're starting to teach it to be done uh, unconsciously or subconsciously. Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably do that. You'd probably need some sort of... Um a variable feedback schedule with your pedal stroke, right? So you'd be doing, I can imagine a world where you're doing the mental task, right? That's the primary thing. And then every, you know, three to five minutes, you're getting a, a chart of feedback on your, you know, success for your pedal metrics, mm -hmm. say, right? It's like showing you a chart and like, you know, you've got, you're doing well or, you know, poorly or whatever, whatever, you know, metric you want. I think you do need some some feedback, some form of feedback. Because if you're just pedaling, trying to make it work, and it's not working, then you may have defeated the purpose. So there's got to be some feedback um, intertwined in there to get the benefit. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I guess the the last question I had is: Have you stumbled on anyone else doing this research for performance benefits, or is it? Um sort of a stagnant research area in that we think it could probably help, but nobody's uh, actively researching it. So it's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of this dual task paradigm and combined mental and physical uh, research that's done in the rehab setting, you know, looking at stroke and some other chronic conditions. But I, I had a hard time trying to find anybody who's looking at it from a purely performance perspective. Uh, I looked at all, I figured that, you know, that first paper I mentioned about the, you know, comparing the pros to the amateurs, that one of the papers that would have cited that would have had a, you know, a trial to test out whether or not this works or some training parameter around that. And I, I wasn't able to find anything. I do, I do know there are some people that, like I mentioned that, like a mental fatigue protocol where you do a ton of stuff before you go do your training. I know there's somebody out there doing, I remember reading about it uh, in the book Endure. So there is somebody that's researching it, but um, yeah, I, I don't know that it's wildly popular, if you will. Hmm. Well, I guess it's it's certainly something that um, if you're looking for 
ways to improve, um, you know, the way you see fatigue or the way you feel fatigue. Um, I think a certain subset of the population could find this beneficial. Uh, I guess if you're listening and, and you say, you know, would I benefit from this? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I wonder how much of how much how many of us are limited just by physiological you know we need to do more intervals how many of us are limited by things like biomechanical efficiency and how many of us are limited by the brain saying you know okay you should stop now before you hurt yourself and i think todd for you you would probably say most of us are limited by the brain um whereas i think other coaches would maybe not agree yeah i mean i think at the you know the, the brain is imposing some limit on you, right? Uh, one way or another. The question I think becomes is, is it, is it a, a processing? Is it, you know, that the brain's overrepresenting your fatigue um, and that you can move that needle? Uh, or is it that, you know, you're just physiologically, you know, like you said, you need to do some more base models, you need to do some more intervals. Um, and so I, I think this is probably one of those things like this particular approach, I think is probably more on the margin, in my opinion. I mean, I, again, I, I'd have to do some more research and maybe there needs to be more research done uh, in the sense of trying to figure these things out and maybe doing some, some interesting comparison trials. But my thought is that, you know, if you're doing pretty good and we, we've talked about this many times, like you can get to 80%, right? You, you, across the board, you're doing all right. And so, my thought is if you feel like you've got a good coach or you've got a good training program going, that's going pretty well. And you're maybe scratching your head. This might be something that you look at, or this might be something you add. And it, it feels to me like it might be actually lightweight. It might not be a, a huge commitment. I mean, certainly the software or the apps to be able to do a Stroop test or you know, a lot of them are free or very inexpensive. So it wouldn't be a hard thing to experiment with. Sure. So, uh, right. The rule of thumb is four to eight weeks to see changes. So I would say, you know, once or twice, probably twice a week is good. Um, add it into some of your moderate intensity rides and, you know, after four to eight weeks, go do some hard efforts, see if they're a little bit easier than you thought they might be. And then uh, decide from there if you want to stick with it or not. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. And, you know, in the meantime, maybe we do some more research and see if there's you know, see there's some more out there. And I feel like this is a, I feel like there's a lot of spurs off this conversation uh, that could be future, future discussion, certainly. Sure. So uh, is that all you have for today? Is that, is that our episode? That, that is all I have for this topic for now. Uh, like I said, this might be a to be continued with some future, future research or more data. Sure. And uh, I guess to end off, if you enjoyed, please review and share and subscribe and, um, you know, let your friends know that we're recording this. We really enjoy making it. And of course, would be happy if everyone, you know, benefited from it and everyone was a fast cyclist. So, um, Todd, anything else? Yeah. And so just uh, some of these, all these papers we'll put in the show notes. And there's actually a couple extra I'll, I'll throw in that I didn't specifically reference, but that might be if you're super excited about this or really interested in it, uh, that you might get some value from. So look look there if you're looking for these references or you know have, have interest in the, the research that uh, we were discussing today. And with that, um, I will leave you off with my usual advice, which is to keep the rubber side down. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.